tonight, I'd like to talk about the factors that support concentration and the factors that get in our way. And before I get into that, I want to reiterate what Philip said last night about how to listen to a Dharma talk, particularly on a concentration retreat. See if you can stay connected with your breathing. And just let the words come through. Not, not that you're not paying attention to the words. You can pay attention to both the breathing and the content at the same time. But there's no need to try to hold on to the words. Kind of trust that what you need will land. And if something feels like it's a little too much or it's not, um, it's not landing in a way that makes a lot of sense to you, just let it go. There's a lot of information in this talk and you don't need to hold on to all of it by any means. I'd like to start with some words of the Buddha speaking to his monks. He said, Abandon what is unwholesome, O monks. One can abandon what is, un- what is unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. Cultivate what is wholesome, O monks. One can cultivate the wholesome. If it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do so. This term, wholesome, in this sutta, is a translation of the term kusala, which, often translated as wholesome, is also translated as skillful. Tanisaro Bhikkhu, in particular, translates it as skillful. And he says that you would cultivate uh, a skill that somebody um, who is cultivating a skill, such as a carpenter, would be talked about as being a kusala carpenter. So the term in Pali is apparently was used in this way of meaning skillful. And so we can look at, at this term in terms of what is skillful for us in terms of cultivating concentration. The skill of the Eightfold Path and cultivating concentration being the cultivation of the factors of right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And the skill of that cultivation being understanding what is helpful to let go of and what is helpful to cultivate. So the, the states or the qualities that are helpful to let go of are our old friends, the hindrances. I know many of you have probably heard many, many talks on the hindrances on retreats before. 
And I am going to talk about the hindrances, but I'm not going, this is not going to be a standard hindrance talk. So it, I'm going to approach it in a, in a slightly different, uh, from a slightly different direction. So those are, those are the qualities that we want to abandon, abandon the hindrances. Qualities that we want to cultivate with respect to concentration, there are several sets of lists of qualities that we want to cultivate to support the development of our mindfulness and concentration. One set in particular is called the uh, the jhanic factors, the factors of concentration. So these two lists of qualities, one that uh, are meant to be abandoned and one that are meant to be cultivated, they actually work together in a way that as we abandon the hindrances, we are simultaneously cultivating these factors of concentration. And as we cultivate these factors of concentration, if our, if our uh, attention is going towards cultivating the fact, these factors of concentration, then simultaneously these hindrances are being abandoned. So there's a very powerful process at work between these two lists. So I'm going to talk about both sides of this equation tonight. the Buddha talked about the hindrances with respect to how we can denourish the hindrances. So we can think about these two lists in terms of denourishing the hindrances and nourishing these qualities of concentration. We can think about essentially feeding the supportive qualities and starving the unwholesome, unsupportive qualities. So I'll start with the hindrances, talking a little bit about the hindrances. And you're all familiar with these states from your uh, your meditation practice, the states that essentially hinder our ability to get concentrated. They hinder our ability to settle and stabilize in the present moment. They hinder our ability to have a sense of well-being, these states of sense desire, of ill will, of sloth and torpor, restlessness and anxiety and doubt. The Buddha talked about these states, the hindrances. He used an analogy for the hindrances that I really, I really appreciate. He was a brilliant, uh, he had a brilliant mind and the analogies that he used were very apt. And if we can understand his analogies, it, it can help us to understand something about what he is talking about. So he talked about the hindrances as being like a banyan tree. Now, some of you may know what a banyan tree is, but I'm going to describe it and how it functions, how it works, because it helps us to understand something about how the hindrances work. So the banyan tree begins its life as a seed 
uh, deposited in the crook of a tree, probably by some fig-eating bird, because the banyan tree is a species of the fig tree. So this the seed, this fig seed, gets deposited in the crook of a tree, and it begins to send out shoots, roots that are seeking the ground. And as these roots, these multiple roots that come out from this seed, hit the ground, they stiffen, they get thick, and they uh, they they form a kind of a lattice work. And every place these roots touch each other, they get even stiffer. And so the, uh, the roots of the banyan tree are now starting to compete for nourishment with the tree that it is uh, hosting in. And more roots, as it, as it gains the nourishment from the soil and from the sun, more roots come out and it forms a latticework that essentially surrounds the original tree strangling it from having its own nourishment, eventually killing that tree. And in in its place is this structure of a tree that has a trunk that is just formed of this latticework of what were roots. So this is kind of the way our hindrances function. They, They nourish themselves in our minds. And as they nourish, they strengthen and strangle the wholesome, beautiful qualities in our minds. So we need to take care with what we feed, with what we nourish in our minds. So we want to find ways to let go of the hindrances to take the nourishment out of the hindrances. So I'd like to speak for a little while, just a few minutes, about working with the hindrances in concentration practice. We don't exactly approach them in quite the same way that we do in our mindfulness practice. In our mindfulness practice, we're usually taught when a hindrance gets strong... When, when a hindrance arises, we turn our attention directly to that hindrance. We meet it with mindfulness. In our concentration practice, the first line of working with the hindrance is usually to basically let it be in the background. Stay with the breath if you can. Know that it's there. Acknowledge the hindrance. It's very, very important to recognize and acknowledge that hindrance being there to not uh, deny that it's there, but to allow it to just kind of recede to the background and allow the breath to be in the foreground. So not to suppress the hindrance, but also not to give it any attention. In my own, uh, in my own practice, on my very first long concentration retreat, it was a metta retreat, and it finally, I finally began to understand what it meant to leave the hindrances in the background. And when a hindrance would come up, such as anger, I'd be doing my metaphrases and then anger might arise. And it was actually kind of a relief at some point that I didn't have to 
turn towards that anger and work with it and, and meet it in any way. It's just like, oh yeah, there's that anger. I can just stay with my phrases if metta. It takes a little bit of an adjustment if you're used to the Vipassana practice to learn how to just let these states be in the background. We don't uh, need to meet them directly in order for them to dissipate. That's something I think we, we, ha- we have a belief from doing our, um, our mindfulness practice that if we don't meet the hindrances directly, that somehow they will uh, get stronger. The way this works, my understanding of the way this works, this ignoring process of ignoring the hindrances, letting them be in the background, is that basically we're still cultivating our mindfulness and our concentration on the breath. So the attention is directed somewhere. It's directed to the breath. And there's no... uh, no place for the hindrance to feed from. So essentially, the mindfulness and the concentration are being cultivated on the breathing and the attention just allowing the hindrance to be in the background. Since the mindfulness is in the foreground with the breathing, there's nothing to nourish that hindrance. It essentially will dissipate as, an, as a state because it is an impermanent state of mind. So basically this is a, a learning how to skillfully say not now to the hindrances without aversion, just turning away, just recognizing, yep, I see you, not now. This is not always possible Sometimes the hindrances have more of a momentum than that. They are stronger and they, they kind of have more of a pull on us. If they're, if they're a little bit stronger, one way to work with them is a way that Philip mentioned last night, thinking about this foreground and background of attention. The way that I was just describing working with the hindrances is having the breath in the foreground and the hindrance in the background. Sometimes if the hindrance is stronger, that may get reversed. The hindrance may be in the foreground, but you can keep track of the breath in the background, kind of infusing the um, state of mind, the difficulty, the anger, the desire, the sleepiness, the restlessness, infusing it with the breathing. So you're staying connected to the breath even as you're meeting the hindrance and being aware of the hindrance. If the hindrances become stronger still, we may have to work with them a little bit more directly. There's, there's a couple of different approaches to this. One being using what might be called antidotes to the hindrances. So for instance, using if, if ill will is arising, using the metta practice that we've been starting to work with in the afternoons. The metta practice is said to directly counter ill will. So you can bring the metta practice into your, into your heart and mind and cultivate the quality of metta, which will directly oppose the ill will. 
if sense desire is present, you can uh, contemplate impermanence, which is said to counter sense desire, to be an antidote for sense desire. If you are dull and sleepy, you can do several things. You can, one of the classic reflections for an antidote for sleepiness is to reflect on your mortality. Reflect on the fact that you actually have a limited amount of time in which to practice. So there are some antidotes for working with the hindrances. And I'll talk a little bit more about uh, working with the specific hindrances a little bit later. And then there's our old friend, mindfulness practice. If the hindrance is really calling your attention, if you feel like it's not possible to be with the breath, it's not possible even to bring up an antidote, it's not possible to breathe through the hindrance, turn directly to the hindrance with mindfulness. Now the choice of when to do this is, it's really personal, it's really individual. It's something that we each have to learn to navigate on our own. When is it that we need to let go of cultivating the mindfulness of breathing in favor of turning more directly to the hindrance? So that's something you need to explore yourself. Try playing with these various approaches and see what works for you. Over time, you'll get familiar with how your mind works around these hindrances with respect to cultivating concentration. It's really helpful not to think of um, the hindrances as being any kind of a failure in the concentration practice. It's true that when the hindrances are present, concentration is not so strong. But we can cultivate concentration through working with the hindrances, through all of these ways that I've suggested. Even turning mindfulness towards the hindrances is cultivating concentration. So the relationship we bring to this practice, the relationship that we bring to working with the hindrances, rather than feeling like, oh, I can't do this, I'm never going to be able to do this, just meeting this moment, just meeting here and now, as it is. So in concentration practice, as I mentioned a little while ago, the, the cultivating the qualities of concentration themselves, these, these factors of concentration, actually supports a letting go of the hindrances. It's a very natural process that as concentration develops, these hindrances uh, re- recede. So essentially, the hindrances are abandoned through the cultivation of concentration. 
there are five factors of concentration. Philip mentioned these last night in his talk. He mentioned them just briefly. The factors of uh, aiming and sustaining attention, vitaka and vichara. The factor of rapture, of piti, of happiness, of, of uh, sweetness, that of sukha. And the factor of unification of mind, of one-pointedness of mind, of ekagata. Each one of these factors is understood to counter one of the hindrances. So as these qualities get stronger in our concentration, very naturally the hindrances begin to recede. So this process at play by letting go of the hindrances, if we're actively letting go of the hindrances, working with the hindrances, we're cultivating these factors through mindfully staying with the breath through a hindrance. We're cultivating that ability to connect and sustain with the breathing. By cultivating the ability to connect and sustain with the breathing, we're actively letting go of the hindrances. This is a very powerful dynamic in concentration practice. So these factors of concentration essentially bring the mind together to unify it into unification. These five factors are understood to be present in what might be called, what is called access or neighborhood concentration, which is the concentration that basically at the point where these factors are unified in access concentration or neighborhood concentration, the hindrances are suppressed. They are temporarily suppressed. They're not gone for good. But as these factors become strong and balanced, the hindrances fall away. This is a really, really pleasant state. It's called the bliss of seclusion, the seclusion from the hindrances. And it feels really nice when the hindrances fall away. So this is is access concentration. It's also sometimes called neighborhood concentration because it's in the vicinity of, it's in the neighborhood of the absorption states, the jhana states, which we'll talk more about in coming nights. So these five factors are present in the access concentration, working to suppress the five hindrances and then as uh, moving into the absorption state, they're also said to be present in that first uh, absorption state, the first jhana, in a very powerful way present in the first jhana. So I'd like to explore these factors with you to describe them so that you might get to know them a little bit uh, and also to talk about how they work together which ones we can actively use to cultivate concentration, and uh, which ones actually are results. So of these five, aiming and sustaining, vitaka and vichara, the first two, are the ones that we can actually actively initiate in our practice. Aiming and 
aiming our attention at the breath and sustaining our attention on the breath. The other three, the rapture, the happiness, and the um, unification of mind are a result of the concentration practice. They occur because causes and conditions have come together for them to arise. So they're more of a result. So I'm actually going to spend quite a bit of time talking about these first two because that's where we kind of create this container of concentration through using these first two qualities of aiming and sustaining the attention. So we taka and we chara, these two qualities, are usually talked about as a pair. There's a few places in the sutta where they're, they're talked about separately, but with respect to the, the concentration practice, they're usually talked about together. They work together. Vitaka being the initial movement of directing the attention, often called initial application of mind or aiming, directing the attention. Basically, this is about um, directing the attention towards the breathing in this practice of concentration that we are working on in this retreat. Aiming the attention at the breath. Vichara is a sustaining of attention. It's usually understood to mean um, holding the attention with, or sustaining the attention on the breath, holding the attention on the object. So as a pair, these two qualities bring together basically right effort and right mindfulness. These two aspects of the Eightfold Path that support the cultivation of our mind and support the cultivation of concentration. So these two together bring together right effort and right mindfulness. So this is our practice. This is how we create our container of concentration through applying our attention and sustaining our attention. There's some analogies offered in the suttas around a vitaka and vichara, and vitaka is understood to be as if the, the is like the striking of the bell. Vichara is like the sustained sound that follows. So you can't have the vichara without the vitaka initially. But the vichara exists now. The sustained ringing of the bell exists even though we're not continuing to strike. So vitaka, this aiming of attention, is often thought of as a kind of a narrowing down of attention. When we think about aiming our attention at a particular experience, often that's how we understand it. We're paying attention at the nostrils, we're paying attention at our sternum or at our, or at our abdomen, 
and we think about needing to narrow down our attention so that that's the only thing we're paying attention to, as if somehow we can block out everything else. So this is not actually such a helpful way to think about vitaka, at least in, in my own experience of how a concentration most skillfully settles down. When I think about narrowing, it becomes a kind of a forcing, a forcing into. So I'd like to offer a few uh, s- different ways to think about this aiming of the attention. Some gentler ways, perhaps, to think about aiming the attention. One way is a way that I mentioned in the uh, in one of the meditations yesterday. You know, the breath is sometimes a very delicate creature. It's like one of those little rodents out side scurrying among the bushes if you uh, if you if you um, approach it too directly it's just going to disappear we sometimes have to be very very light and very quiet with our attention kind of approaching the aiming of our attention as if we are looking at something from the side if you um, go out at night, we, well, we can't do it tonight. The stars aren't out tonight. But if, you, if you're looking at the stars sometimes, if you're trying to have uh, a star that's kind of faint in the sky, be visible, you'll notice that if you try to look directly at one of those faint stars, it disappears. But you move your eye just slightly to the side and it pops into view. So this is the kind of thing that I find helpful in turning my attention to such a delicate experience as the breath. To not try to look at it really directly, but allow the experience to come in from the edges. So that's one way, observing it as if through our peripheral attention. Another way that I have found helpful to aim the attention at the breath is to use what I might call something like a request or an intention or an invitation. Philip has used this word invitation. So I might, um, in my settling in to the meditation, rather than trying to point my mind at the breath or to direct my attention at the breath, once I find a relaxed container, I ask, I I drop the invitation into the mind. May the attention rest with the breathing. And then I just sit back and see whether that invitation allows a kind of a natural connection. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. If it can allow that kind of natural connection, you can begin to learn how the mind more naturally pays attention to the breathing without being forced into it through an act of will. So that's another, another possibility with respect to this aiming of attention. Another way is something that Sally has mentioned, allowing the breath to come to you. 
settling back rather than you turning your attention to the breath, settling back and inviting the breath to come to you. A, a receiving of the experience of breathing. So we chara, also we have a tendency to have an attitude of needing to hold on to the breath, a feeling that uh, we have to latch our attention to the breath and hang on for all we're worth. And again, that, that approach will wear you out. It can work to create a concentration, but it's a kind of a brittle concentration. So this practice is kind of like running a marathon and that holding on is like sprinting. And if you try to run the distance with the sprint, you're going to exhaust yourself. So a, a more gentle, relaxed approach to this sustaining of the attention. And initially, it's, it's kind of more about short moments many times. Just a short meeting of the breath say, just enough energy to stay with a half a breath. That's about maybe two seconds. Right now, just wherever you are in the cycle of your breath, how much energy does it take to meet a half a breath? And then do it again. This is Vitaka and Vichara working together. The aiming of the attention to... Incline the mind to pay attention to a half-breath. And the wachara, the sustaining, just for a few seconds. And then doing it again, and doing it again, and doing it again. In this way, you can... This is, this is how you can keep the mindfulness and the concentration going. Because it's not... It won't wear you out to just keep doing this. And it's a very light touch, just really light. Moment after moment, meeting the breath. There's an analogy that I like to use around how this Vitaka and Vichara works in our practice. Uh, and you've all seen these scooters that little kids use, you know, these little two-wheeled scooter things that, you know, they're narrow and to get going, to get the momentum going, you have to tap your foot down on the ground. So to get started, you have to tap pretty frequently. And otherwise, you know, you're going to wobble and fall over. But after a while, you can ride for a longer time because the momentum has built up from the tapping. So the tapping is like the aiming of the attention. So initially in our practice, we need to aim more frequently and just see how long it sustains for. Just, you know, trying to sustain just for short periods of time. But as the momentum builds, we don't need to aim quite as frequently because that sustaining has built a momentum, like the scooter. After a while, after tapping for a while, you can ride for a while on that scooter. And again, with the scooter, you begin to get a sense of when it's getting wobbly. When do you need to put your foot down again and tap again? 
And likewise, we can start to get a sense of that in our meditation. When is the sustaining of the attention getting a little wobbly? When do we need to redirect, reconnect more carefully with that aiming of the attention back to the breath? So it's really helpful to set up the container, to take the time to set up the container of the meditation with, this re- with a relaxed attention. And this is, we talk it and we chara together, can be used to create a container of relaxed attention, or it can be used to create a fairly tight, rigid container. So it's up to you how you use these, how you explore this. If you notice that the way that you are aiming and trying to sustain the attention is making the mind feel tight, it's helpful to let go, to back off, to relax. One uh, game I like to play with myself at times in the practice, because I tend, at least I tend towards over-efforting, towards too much holding on, too much tightening around. I sometimes ask myself, how little effort do I need in order to stay connected? And just back off the effort a little bit. Seeing where can the relaxed attention stay in contact with the breathing. It's the contact we need We don't need it to be grabbed on. It just needs to meet it very gently, meeting it. Taking the time to set up that container where the mind is meeting experience in this relaxed way is well worth the time. In my own practice, I found starting with this relaxation, settling back, very much with a spacious, full-body awareness. And as the mind settles and relaxes from that space, gently guiding the attention towards the breathing. If I see that the attention tightens down on the breathing, I back off. I go back to relaxation. Going back and forth between that relaxation and inclining the mind back to touch with the breathing. And it seems like doing that practice slowly the mind begins to educate itself in terms of how to focus on an experience in a relaxed way. How to direct the attention towards the breathing without gripping on it. So that's been my experience, that I really find it helpful to take a substantial amount of time to set, set up that container that container of a very skillful vitaka and vichara. From there, the rest of it unfolds. So taking that time, don't be in such a hurry to grab onto that breath and try to sustain that attention. Be more gentle about it, more relaxed. So vitaka, this quality of aiming the attention, is said to counter sloth and torpor. How many of you felt sleepiness in the last day? It's a big 
companion, particularly on these first days of the retreat. Um, they are going to be present. It's not, it's not a failure in any, in any way. It is just part of the terrain, partly just from coming into the retreat from our busy lives. Of course, we're going to be uh, worn out. Take some short naps. You know, that's really helpful. It can be very supportive. You know, a, a short, short 10, 15 minute naps a couple times a day. Very, it can be very supportive for concentration practice as we're adjusting to the settling of energy. The practice itself, as is, I think, been mentioned a couple of times, can make us sleepy also. That the settling of the mind, the mindful, I mean, the concentration, as the concentration settles, the mind can get kind of dull if there's not enough energy to balance that. That energy and concentration need to be balanced in this practice for the, the concentration to really deepen. So if energy is not quite balanced with concentration, we're going to have something called sinking mind. And the the mind will just, it feels like you're just fine, everything's going fine, and suddenly it's like... That's a sign that the energy is not quite matching the the concentration. So it's it's, um, helpful to use, you can use this quality of vitaka, of aiming very consciously when the mind gets a little bit dull or sleepy. This is one of the factors we do have some control over. So using that, um, perhaps using a little bit more precision with paying attention to the breath, aiming the attention, what's the very first experience, what's the very first sensation that lets you know the in-breath is beginning? Using that uh, a little bit more precision when the mind is dull can bring up that energy. It's really helpful, it, particularly if you're experiencing something like this sinking mind, to make very small adjustments. Um, it's almost as if you know the, the concentration magnifies what happens in our minds somehow. And so if you do something kind of uh, large, like, you know, oh, I'm really sleepy or I'm, I'm feeling so dull, I'm going to go take a really brisk walk to bring up the energy, you may find yourself with way too much energy. Some very small things can be helpful. Just open your eyes. Just try to aim a little bit more carefully. Maybe take one or two longer, slower, deeper breaths to bring a little bit more energy in. Uh, the, the small adjustments actually can make quite a large change in our energy levels. The quality of sustaining the attention, the vichara, is said to be the antidote to doubt. We experience doubt in many things. We experience doubt, particularly one of the main places we experience doubt in meditation is doubt in ourselves, our own ability. We start thinking about the fact that, well, everybody else seems to be able to do this and I can't do this. So when we're lost in doubt, we've lost connection with the experience. We're not even in the vicinity of the breath. So this quality of sustaining the attention 
is the counter to that. If we can just meet our breath and just stay there for a few moments, then meet our breath and stay there. It, there won't be room for the, those thoughts of doubt to come in. As long as there's connection to experience, the doubt begins to recede. So try this. We basically needing to stay connected. If you're experiencing doubting thoughts, see if you, you can engage the willingness to try. Just, yep, there's doubt. Can I just connect with this next breath? Can I sustain my attention on this in-breath? Connect with this out-breath, sustain my attention on the out-breath. Be willing to try that. That willingness actually is the, the beginning, the seed of faith. The willingness to engage in the practice is connected to the confidence that the practice will support us. So that also counters doubt. The willingness to engage. So the next aspect of the next factor of concentration is rapture, PT. And this is delight and joy that comes accompanied by a lot of interest. Sometimes a PT is defined even as rapt attention or joyful interest. So it comes about basically through Vitaka and Vichara sustaining the attention on the breath in this gentle way. The mind starts to get interested in the breath. One of my teachers talks about um, ways to support this interest in the breath. That as we... um, stay with the breath if we can find ways to make the breathing comfortable then the mind will want to stay with the breath he uses this analogy my teacher Tan, Tanisarabiku Tan Jeff uses this analogy about uh, and this comes from his own teacher Ajahn Fuang that if you want to catch an eel eels are pretty slippery you know, if you, if you want to catch an eel, you need to give eels something they like. And so you put um, a jar in the river with some um, dead animal in the bottom of the jar, which is what eels like to feed on. And you just put the, the jar in the river and the eels will just go right in there. And he says, it's like that with the breath. You, you need to give the mind something that it likes, an enjoyable experience of the breathing. And so actually in concentration practice, it's fine to play with the breath, to actually explore ways to make the breath more comfortable, more pleasurable. As we uh, cultivate this kind of comfortable, pleasurable breath, the mind gets more and more interested in staying with the breathing. And this quality of rapture begins to come about. It can be accompanied by very pleasant experience. It's a lot of bodily experience. It's often a f- 
fairly energetic bodily experience, quite a bit of energy. It can be felt as tingling or goosebumps. It might be felt as flashes of energy or feelings of like um, um, energy rushing through the body. It might feel like showering waves, just like being pounded by the surf. It, it doesn't sound pleasant, but it's actually quite lovely feeling of just this waves of rapture. You might feel like you're filled with lightness or just a bladder that's suffused with pleasure. So rapture has these aspects of, of energetic experience in the body, pleasurable, sometimes pleasurable experience, uh, interest in the uh, object of attention, and a feeling of being nourished a feeling that the body and mind are being refreshed by the experience. For me, it feels just like all the cells in the body are just drinking up this wonderful elixir. So this is a result of our practice. It's not something we can make happen. We cultivate the sense of interest, through uh, turning our attention to the breathing, cultivating the pleasant, pleasurable aspects of the breathing. We can appreciate the breath, as Philip was talking about, the life-giving breath, the beautiful breath. All of these things will support and cultivate this interest, this Interest which will then in turn support the mind's ability to more fully connect and sustain the attention on the breathing. We can tend to be pulled to the sensations of rapture. They can be strong sensations. And they can also be very interesting. The, the sensations of rapture can be like, ooh, that feels interesting. And it can pull our attention away from the breath. It's really helpful to see if you can stay with the breath while the rapture is uh, beginning and coming into being. The rapture itself is nourished by the attention to the breathing. So if you turn the attention away from the breathing to the rapture, you're essentially cutting off a large source of the nourishment for that rapture. So seeing if you can stay connected with the breathing while the rapture's happening, allowing the rapture. For me, it seems almost like working with a hindrance, allowing the rapture to be in the background, staying connected with the uh, breathing in the foreground, not letting the mind get pulled to the rapture. But paradoxically, unlike with the hindrances when we do this, letting them be in the background and the breath in the foreground, the hindrances recede. With this situation, with the rapture in the background, the breath in the foreground, the rapture builds. It strengthens the rapture. The presence of rapture counters ill will. When the mind is in such a state of interest in what's happening, it's not interested in exploring the sides of things that uh, 
make it not interested in what's happening. Ill will is a state of disliking what's going on. When we're in this state of rapture, there's a very natural interest in our experience. So the mind's quite happy, contented, states that naturally oppose ill will. So the fourth factor of concentration is sukha, happiness. This is a kind of a mental pleasure, a sweetness, the sweetness we've been talking about, a contentment. This sukha is present with rapture. It's present kind of in the rapture. But it's a subtler experience And so often it's obscured by the kind of energetic quality of the rapture. The sukha itself is not quite so energetic. There's actually more of a tranquility to the sukha. And so it often becomes more apparent as the energy of rapture begins to subside. The suttas talk about well, actually, I think this is not in the suttas. This is in the commentaries in the Visuddhimagga. The, an analogy that helps under, us understand the distinction between rapture and this uh, sweetness or the, the piti and the sukha. The rapture is compared to the state of a, the joy and... Um, interest of somebody who's crossing a desert and and is very thirsty and sees an oasis in the distance and knows that nourishment and liquid and refreshment are coming and the state of happiness of the sukha is compared to that person having reached the oasis and taken a drink and is now resting in the shade So there's no longer that sense of urgency or that sense of energy around having that drink or that sense of strong interest in the drink because the drink has been taken. So there's a a tranquilizing, a calming of that energy. So again, it's not something we can do. It's a result of the practice of setting this container, this relaxed, attentive container the continuity, the relaxation, connection with the breath supports these other qualities arising. Sukha is said to counter restlessness and anxiety, the, the, the fourth hindrance. We can see how restlessness is kind of an excess of energy. Both physical and mental restlessness are kind of an excess of energy. And this sukha is moving into a tranquilizing of the body and mind. And so it directly counters that. We can have a tendency to grasp at sukha. It is so pleasant. My own phrase for this when it comes about in my practice, it's the oh yes state. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's real. Why would I not want to be in this space? Really, really pleasant. So it can, again, it can kind of pull our attention. 
So again, let it be in the background. Allow the connection with the breath in the foreground. The last of the factors of concentration is ekagata. One-pointedness is the literal translation of this term, but often also referred to as a unification of mind. And this actually points to two ways of understanding this. One-pointedness being kind of the understanding of the concentration that develops as we direct our attention to a single object. The, the kind of just paying attention to one experience. The unification of mind can come about more as a stability of mind, even though there may be other experiences than just this one object. So this, the, the stability of mind, the unification of mind, is the kind of stability that gets developed in our vipassana practice. The um, ekagata that we're developing here is we're more encouraging through this stabilizing on one object. Just choosing our breath and staying with it. It's often used as a synonym for concentration, ekagata. It contains a balance of mind that basically there's nothing that we want to change when the mind is unified, when it is uh, in this space of one-pointed attention. The mind feels balanced, it feels contented, no problem. So nothing that we want to change, nothing that feels like it needs to change, that points to the hindrance that this state counters. It counters sense desire, the, the state of wanting, the state of wanting something, to have something that we don't have, the desire to want to have things. As we practice concentration and these factors come together, we begin to experience States of pleasure, of bliss, of balance that are beyond sense pleasure. We really start to see, actually, that way more satisfying than sense pleasure are these states of rapture, of happiness, of balance of mind. That oh yes feeling I talk about. Way more satisfying than having a piece of chocolate from the Dhammapada. If by renouncing a lesser happiness, one may realize a greater happiness, let the wise one renounce the lesser, having regard for the greater. And another passage from the Buddha. Even though a disciple has seen clearly as it actually is, with proper wisdom, how sensual pleasure provides little gratification, much suffering, and much despair, and how great is the danger in them, 
As long as she does not attain to the rapture and pleasure that are apart from sensual pleasures, that is, the rapture and pleasure of concentration, or to something more peaceful than that, she may still be attracted to sense pleasures. But when a noble disciple has seen clearly as it actually is with proper wisdom how sensual pleasures provide little gratification, much suffering, much despair, and how great is the danger in them, and he attains to the rapture and pleasure that are apart from sensual pleasures, then he is no longer attracted to sensual pleasures. So the state of concentration, in particular this quality of one-pointedness, allows us to let go of the grosser kinds of happiness that come from sense pleasure or a more refined kind of happiness. So as I said earlier, the cultivation of these concentration states essentially allows us to set aside the hindrances. We abandon the hindrances for the period of time in which we're in the state of concentration, bringing this beautiful bliss of seclusion. The state of concentration, as we are entering into it, we are learning about how the hindrances arise, what, how we can skillfully avoid them. We're learning about what supports the cultivation of this skillful state of concentration. So essentially, we're really learning about the skill of meditation, the skill of creating the concentration. And it is a skill. It is something that we can all gain in skillfulness. We cannot actually create concentration itself, but we can cultivate the qualities that nourish it. We can let go of the qualities that counter it. Essentially, watering the field of our minds such that concentration will naturally arise. So let's just sit for a few moments. Thank you for your kind attention. So we have about half an hour for walking and then we'll be back for the chanting at nine o'clock. 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.